HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to Spill and Dish, a podcast from the Specialty Food Association. Founded in 1952, SFA is the leading trade association and source of information about the $194 billion specialty food industry. We champion the food producers, retailers, and other buyers who make up the specialty food world. If you want to know more about membership, visit specialtyfood.com. While on the site, check out the new Maker Prep Course, a 12-step online program that will teach you how to take your specialty food product to the next level. In each episode, we want to share the stories behind the products made and sold by our members who are helping shape the future of food. You can listen and discover the inspiration, recipe, craft, culture, ingredients, and production methods that help answer the question, what makes specialty food special? I'm today's host, Julie Gallagher, Director of Content Development at SFA. We're excited to bring you today's episode and so happy to be working with Heritage Radio Network, a nonprofit podcast network covering the world of food, drink, and agriculture, and expanding the way eaters think about food. Today's guest is Dom BG, CEO of Beaverton Foods, the largest specialty condiment manufacturer in the U.S., Dom was recently named to Specialty Food Association's Hall of Fame. Congratulations, Dom, on this honor. Oh, well, thank you. It's it's really an honor. I mean, I, and especially because my dad is also a Hall of Famer, it feels extra special to join him in the, in this honor. That's great. So I know you weren't born yet, but I'm sure this <laughs> story is legendary in your family. Can you take me back to the beginning of Beaverton Foods? Yeah, it was started by my grandmother, who was an Italian immigrant, came from Genoa, Italy, and settled into the Beaverton area. Uh, she was a farmer, and her major crop in that time was was horseradish. Um, being Italian, I mean, nobody's gone to an Italian restaurant and ate a, a big jar of horseradish. It's not exactly right. part of the culinary offerings in most Italian cuisine. But she she grew the horseradish, and she would take her crops into downtown Portland. And and among her, uh, she started 
bottling horseradish and trading it with the local grocery stores in downtown Portland. And she met a, a lady named uh, Eve Meyer who had a husband named Fred Meyer. And that was the, a big store chain that's still around in Portland. And that's got my grandma into bottling horseradish and selling it into grocery stores. And That's amazing. And so that wasn't during the Depression. Wow. So that was in 1929? Okay. Yeah, in the 20s, yeah. Oh, wow. So she helped the family... Yeah, Stay you know, afloat. you think about the depression. You, you did what you needed to do to, to feed the kids. And my dad was the youngest of, of three children and, and grew up with the business. Okay. You know, and we farmed until we were in the 70s. And then we started contracting with farmers elsewhere in Southern Oregon, Northern California. And we still have a very good, close relationship with that family who grows our horseradish. And again, dad got us into specialty foods and started coming to fancy food shows back in the you know, late 50s, early 60s, you know, before I was born. Wow. And uh, so we've been a part of this association for a long, long time and watched the industry grow and change and evolve. And and we've learned, we've learned a lot from our friends here in the industry, and it's been a, a great association. So what year did your father take over the business? And I, I know that he recently passed. Yeah. My condolences. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I appreciate you saying something. Uh, yeah, Dad uh, and my grandma were very, very close, and... Um, my dad bought out my uncle in 1985, so then my, my dad owned the business from 1985 until, well, till today. And, uh, yeah, he just passed back in December. He was 94, so and he, wow. he loved the specialty food trade and, and what it stood for and his friends. And, you know, some of the people here in this room are, are more family than, than friends. And so this is our, our life was the specialty food trade. So it's very yeah. important for us to, to be here. And we're, again, honored by the, the awards that we've gotten over the years from the association. That's excellent. So do you still, are you still in the horseradish business or is it all mustard? Yeah, no, we're still in the horseradish business. Our niche has always been the shelf-stable horseradish. We're the largest manufacturer of shelf-stable horseradish. And it's still a privately held business where all, you know, all the manufacturers are owned, still family owned. So it's, it's hard to gauge the size of the industry, but we're, we're certainly one of the largest producers of uh, manufacturers of, of horseradish in the country. And we do sell our products throughout the United States. And where most horseradish manufacturers are largely regional because they're refrigerated, it's too expensive to ship refrigerated horseradish different parts of the country because of the distance. But we were able to because we're shelf-stable. So it's a it's still 25 to 30% of our, our volume is a horseradish product. Oh, that's great. Was it always shelf-stable back in the no, 20s? No, 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 it wasn't. Um, there was a gentleman who uh, was very active in the SFA with uh, Reese Finer Foods. His name was Maury Kushner, and he challenged my dad to come up with a shelf-stable horseradish. And if he did... More, Mr. Kushner promised my dad he would take our horseradish and put it in every store in the United States. And my dad came up with that formula, and Maury Kushner put us in every grocery store in the United States. So it was a great association. We still make Reese horseradish to this day. So, Oh, that's a great story. And so tell me about when mustard came into the picture and how. Yeah, you get into the, say, let's say the 1960s, early 1970s. Most of the specialty musters were coming in from Europe. You had the, the German Hofbrows and the hot English and the Belgian flavored mustards, Stone Grounds and French Dijon. I mean, Grey Poupon was still in, 
an imported item in those days. And so the only thing that was being made in the United States was, was yellow mustard, French's yellow mustard, largely some regional brands, you know, spicy browns and, and things like that. So the mustard industry was not very big, and the gourmet trade was dominated by, by big companies in Europe importing in the United States. My dad had the idea that he can make product as good or better than the Europeans, and the distributors didn't have to buy container loads and import them from, from Europe, and then dad would keep our products because they could buy them in smaller volumes. They would maintain their shelf life and their flavor quality, keep the flavor oh. uh, at a peak. And so that's a niche my dad created, and and he was right. He was able to create product that uh, not only better than the Europeans, and, uh, and the distributors bought it in lower volumes and kept the product fresh. But then my dad also got really creative. So he was the first one to um, come up with honey mustard, all these flavors. We have still have 100-plus flavors of mustards that my dad created, and nobody else has ever, you know, tried to replicate them because they're so you know, unique. But <laughs> he was really the guy who came up with honey mustard, uh, deli mustard, adding horseradish into mustards, adding fruit into mustard. My, my dad did all those things. So it was very, very creative. Wow. We're the first company to put gourmet condiments in squeeze bottles. Before then, it was really no kind of considered economics. It was kind of you put cheap products into plastic, and we were the first company to put gourmet products into into plastic squeeze bottles. So that was another niche that we pioneered. I love that. Um, let's see. So I know that Ingelhoffers is one of your brands. What other um, brands are your mustards marketed under? Yeah, we have our Beaver brand, which okay. is sort of our West Coast gourmet grocery brand. We also own a brand called Tule Lake Horseradish. That's a regional brand as well. We own a, a brand called Pacific Farms, which is largely wasabi and some Asian sauces. And we're just recently adding a, a brand called Red Duck, which is going to be our organic and natural brand. That's brand new? Yeah. Yeah. We're just really launching to trade at this trade show. Oh, incredible. So tell me about when you sort of joined the family business. I know that you were probably, you know, part of it growing up, but right, talk to me right. a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, when you're young, you work for in kind, right? Food, <laughs> right. food shelter, maybe a little movie <laughs> money, right? And, um, I uh, went away to college and worked for another food manufacturing company for a, a number of years. Uh, my dad was actually making some product for them as well, co-packing for them. And so I had an association there. Uh, dad asked me to come into the company in 1990, okay. primarily to do sales work. Um, and, you know, and you're right. I, I did everything as a kid, you know, swept the floors and cleaned the bathrooms and packed the product and learned how to mix and work in the warehouse. And you can imagine every, every, wherever somebody had a vacation, I filled in for them during school, you know, during the summers and such. Um, but yeah, in 1990, I came on with the company primarily to, to, to sales work. And, um, and in those days we had kind of spotty. Uh, distribution throughout the United States. And my job was basically go, go find the brokers, go find distributors, and go find the store placements in, in the chains in, the, in different markets. And so that's basically what I did the bulk of my career into the last 10 years when I took over as CEO. Okay. And what would you say are some challenges that members of family businesses encounter and what advice might you have for a small <laughs> yeah, You might need another podcast business. for some of this you know, <laughs> and maybe some uh, wine because there's a lot of therapy that, that happens. You know, we, the difference in a family business is when you work for somebody, you get to go home and you leave it at home. In the family business, you go home and, it, and your business is still there. And so, right. you know, trying to divide the two is, is always a challenge. And so I've seen some families do it very, very well and some families don't. Um, the other thing is somebody once told me, don't try to be another like your dad. 
carve out your own niche. And so my dad was really good at product creation and label development. So I went into into sales and and then also tried to learn other things about the company, finance and insurance and food safety, things that he could have obviously done, but he, he had his niche and his focus. So I didn't try to be a better product developer than my dad. I let him do that. He was really good at it and uh, it actually spoiled me. It was really kind of nice to have great product that people liked that he developed and I can go sell it. So mm-hmm. we got very along uh, really symb- symbionically because he would create product and I knew how to get in the stores. And so we had a great relationship. I think a lot of family businesses Children try to be like their parent or do what their parent and try to do it better. And there's a, a natural conflict, I think, there. And so I, I always encourage everybody in family business, do something that the parent or the grandparent isn't necessarily focused on or not doing very well. And then you're adding value to your family business. And so, but there's also a lot of family business where kids, the parents overpay them to do a oh. job they don't like. Okay. And they can't leave because they're getting overpaid, but they don't like the work they're doing. So as soon as the the founder or the second generation dies, they sell the company off because they don't really love the business and they don't like the work. And so my my dad made sure that, uh, you know, I didn't get into the business because it was overpaying me. And I got it because I had a lot of pride in my grandma's efforts to start a company and what my dad was doing. I really liked the business. And so uh, it, it was a lifestyle. It wasn't just about money and Mm-hmm. And those kinds of things. So I think when you're doing a family business, make sure your your kids love the business and are willing to sacrifice for it, and don't overpay them just because you're your family. So make sure they're in it for the right reasons. That's great advice. Is there a next generation involved in the business now? Yeah, I have my uh, sister's son, my nephew Jeff, is involved in the business. He's the fourth generation, and and uh, you know he's uh, in training. And he's doing a great job working all different aspects of our job. We brought him in as, as well as doing sales. I mostly focus on the food service channel, but now he's in the other parts of our, our company and purchasing and, and uh, production and, and do ERP implementation, those kinds of things. So he and I work very, very well together, too, doing things that I prefer not to spend my time on and <laughs> let me focus on what I like to do. And so it works out good. We have a good relationship. That's so nice. Um, so I understand that Beaverton has over 500 recipes. It sounds like your dad is responsible for many of the recipes, yeah. um, but not all are manufactured. So what do you intend to do with them? Do you always think in the back of your mind, oh, maybe we'll bring this one to market? Yeah, we, we look at those things, formulas or assets. And so you just never know when taste and, and uh, things change. Uh, there's always different trends. Or we get an idea and we go, oh, that would really be good with this old formula. We'll use that old formula and modify it, come up with a new a new formula. Hence, then it's <laughs> 501, right? And so this is how we get to 500 because we're always utilize, utilizing those old formulas to create new formulas. And, mm-hmm. and then some people will come with us an idea and we go, ah, oh, we have something close to that. And so we just will end up tweaking that existing formula for maybe a co-pack or for ourselves. Okay. And tell me a bit about the co-packing side of the business. When did that um, come to be? Really almost from the start because my at first my grandma had her own brand, but then there was a, a local Borden's division of Borden's, uh, which now it's cheese, but they, they actually made horseradish. They're locally in Portland. So my grandma made Borden's horseradish and it was 80% of our business was Borden brand horseradish. And they ended up leaving uh, us uh, for another manufacturer, and that's when we started developing our own brands, the Beaver brands, and and uh, started doing other co-packing. So we've always done some sort of co-packing from our inception, making products for other people. 
Okay, and you did the co-packing during the pandemic, I oh, imagine? Oh, yeah, yeah. What a lot, was that lot of, like? A lot of co-packing. Yeah, yeah. the pandemic was interesting. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of good stories out there uh, now that we're beyond it all. But, yeah, it was it was challenging. That, uh, But a lot of people, there's a lot of manufacturers who shut down, and so we had some opportunities to pick up some new business during the pandemic, and those some of those opportunities are still, you know, coming to fruition. So it's been a, for us, it's, it's worked out pretty well. So we're, we're, we feel good about our positioning in the marketplace and the, the trends that our company's currently looking at right now. We're, we feel well positioned. So what kind of challenges have you encountered related to ingredient price increases? Yeah. yeah. No, it was really interesting. We had a lot of ingredients that came from overseas, you know, transportation, you're getting container load from from Asia, you know, started at three thousand or four thousand dollars, and quickly went to twenty two, twenty three, twenty four thousand wow. dollars. Literally within a few months, and so it was really hard to absorb a twenty thousand dollar increase just in container cost, and then plus the cost of the actual ingredient went up too. So, yeah, it, it was challenging, and of course we have promotions with our distributors and stores, and usually those are three to six month contracts. Oh, okay. You know, not everybody's willing to break their contract, take on our new 30% increase, increase. and absorb our cost of transportation. So it, our margins were hurt for, for quite a while. So it took about a year and a half, two years to get, get our margins back. So it's been a, been a struggle, um, but we're, we're trending really good right now. So we're, we're happy about that. And we're just lucky that um, our customers and consumers out there continue to buy our product in spite of it going you know, increasing a dollar or two a jar in some cases. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it was pretty significant. And when you're a salesperson, that hurts because you, you want to be competitive, you know, mm-hmm. price-wise. And so to, to see your price go up that much that fast. But it was everybody, so everybody in our category. I mean, everything in the store, you know, if there's 12,000 items in a store, 12,000 items went up in price. And if right. it didn't, somebody didn't know what they were doing. So, I mean, everything went up. So it was challenging to trying to get – get costs contained and figure it out and get, get reinvent everything. So it was a, it was quite a, quite a process, quite a, nothing I learned in school. Let's put it that way. It was right. trial by fire and just grind it out every day. And I have a tremendously good team around me, including my nephew and uh, to help solve the problem and get us out in front of it. And it seems like the specialty consumer might be a little less sensitive to price in some yeah, cases. I think so. I, I, it's always been the factor in the specialty food trade that you know people value um, quality and valued the products. They weren't just, you know, nobody. The world exists very nicely without you know most of the items in this trade show. You know, we're not staples. Mm-hmm. We're not must needs. We're we're like like to haves. Right. And uh, we refer to ourselves as, a, as an affordable luxury. Um, so we feel very fortunate that our sales have increased and the consumers, we have consumers that can absorb the price increases and some of the stresses that have happened with the with the food industry. And we, we feel very fortunate about our, our brands and products still being popular with, with customers. Okay. And can you talk a little bit about demand for your product during the pandemic? Yeah, actually demand went up. Yeah, and it was really an interesting dynamic that so many things were happening in the in the global economy, and our and our sales increased twenty four, five, six, seven percent. So wow! But at the same time, we're having that you know really huge crunch on our margins and and trying to get glass and ingredients in. And so, I mean, if you have a formula and it has eleven ingredients, you only need one ingredient not to be there, and you can't right. make it. So it was it was a struggle. So we 
to get through all of that, uh, it was it, it's rewarding to be back on top of that. But our sales have have increased um, through the pandemic, and they they tapped out a little bit, kind of uh, stopped. Um, when we have price increases, that usually levels off your volume because typically mm-hmm. stores and distributors will buy in at the old price, and so. But when that inventory gets used up, then they come back in and start ordering again. And we're in that that mode right now where, where stores are coming back and, and ordering at the, at the new pricing. And so we're seeing good sales and, and volume is still very, very healthy for us. That's great. Tell me a little bit about um, food service and what's happening mm. in the food service space. Yeah, we were growing pretty nicely in the food service space uh, before the pandemic. And uh, we had some national distribution and some chain business that we were growing. And, and obviously the pandemic stopped it. I mean, literally overnight. So, But we're seeing it come back and we're actually getting our sales uh, have not only uh, gotten back to the historical volumes, but we're, we're actually growing that part of our business pretty nicely. And so um, we're really excited about the food service and, and developing proprietary formulas for restaurants and chains and and uh, people in that in that food service space and sauces. You think about all the different sauces that a restaurant has and needs, and they need good ingredients, but they want something. You need to be able to make it in a safe plant, you know, with the HACCP and the SQF and all the food mm-hmm. safety things, and we have that. So we're we're able to fill that need. I mean, it's a federal law. you got to have food right. safety is a federal thing. you got to have it. If you don't have it to the degree they want it, you're not going to get the opportunity. So we have that right off the bat, but then we, we're also very – good at creating uh, uh, small volumes. Mm-hmm. So if you think about a restaurant doing a limited time offering, um, we're able to do that for them, maybe make a, a few batches and a few couple hundred cases of gallons or something for a chain to introduce and try. We're able to do that for them. Where a lot of manufacturers have such high volumes um, for their minimums where we have a very small volume for minimums. So we were able to work with people and being creative and doing the R&D for, for them. So we're, we like our niche in that, uh, in that space. What are some of the more creative things that you've helped oh, to gosh. bring? We've done things. Uh, I know we developed a line of, of products that kind of mimic and mirror the Chick-fil-A sauces. That's been kind of fun. A lot of local change, a lot of Asian flavors um, have been infused into what were kind of traditional American condiments. So we're working with a lot of really unique, clever entrepreneurial people in the food space. And um, a lot of it, you know, we're also looking at packaging all the time, how to get more shelf life, clean the products up, you know, make them more natural and organic, but then get that shelf life back in by having better packaging. So that's, we've been playing around a lot with that as well. So um, there's just, it's always dynamic out there. You know, we're just, yeah. we have a culture of embracing new and novel and things that are difficult and things that, you know, the big guys won't do because they're not economical enough or enough not enough volume so we we, again we like to be big enough to where we know how to do it um and still uh, be profitable but not too big enough it gets too big the big guys will come in and take the business from you so you Mm -hmm. you need to find that that niche and so and then write it as long as you can until the big guys come in and either a buy you or, or b come up with an item and try and knock you off and that's kind of the history of this industry because we're all we're all too small and um you know, you either are very successful and people copy you or, or you end up selling out. And that's kind of the nature of this, this industry. So we, we ride that formula a lot in a yeah. lot of different categories. Yeah. 
That's great. And so you're only a few years away from your 100th anniversary. Mm, What would you say is next for the business? Well, that's interesting. Uh, We've been talking about that, you know, with my my dad passing away and, and, you know, we got along so good, but there are are some things now we can explore that uh, require less vigorous dialogue. Okay. (laughs) And so we're we're having a lot of fun with, you know, sales and marketing and adding people and adding lines. We think there may be, maybe there's a brand out there that we might buy. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's joint partnerships, um, a lot of export going back into Europe or maybe over to Asia to make, to send products over there. So we really do think we're, we have a lot of opportunities, a lot of different areas. And, um, you know, I, I take all meetings. I mean, I listen to everybody. So you just nice. you never quite know. And, and a company this size I used to challenge my dad, Dad, we need a five-year plan. He goes, Dom, I don't know what I'm going to do in five minutes. (laughs) We're one phone call away from a completely different, uh, being a completely different company. But we are always going to stay in the the condiment business. Um, You never know what what niche is going to end up growing, what what other opportunities are coming uh, in in our industry and so in our our segment. So we're we're very open and having a lot of fun with, uh, you know, doing things in the company and, and trying to set a good foundation and a good base for, the next 10, 15 years. Okay. So we're almost out of time, but before you go, we'd like for you to participate in our final segment called Take Five, where we ask five questions. Mm. First, let's pause for a break. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hello again, and welcome back. Okay, here are your five questions for our final segment, Take Five. What's your favorite thing about the specialty food industry? Well, I say it's the relationships I have with, you know, whether it's a store buyer, a broker, other other manufacturers, other other vendors. I, mean, I just have some of my best friends in the world are in this industry, not, not necessarily my college buddies or my high school friends, but really people I've met in this industry. Okay. What's one thing that SFA has made easier for you as a specialty food business owner? Um, just having this show actually bringing us together both on the East and the West Coast, um, again, to help foster those relationships. That This show is very important to us in our, in our business model. It's, it's one of our, we don't discuss, we just do it because it's that valuable to us. And if you weren't leading a specialty food business, what would you be doing? Uh, you know, it might be a, a landscaper or an architect, um, maybe a ski bum. I mean, I'm or an aspiring, uh, you know, senior golfer guy <laughs> or something. I, okay. And what's the one piece of advice you'd give to a new food business? 
Well, I would say do your experimenting local in your local marketplace. Don't try to grow too fast. Um, you want to make your mistakes close to home. Uh, you don't want to make them far from home because it's easier to fix when it's close to home. And so learn your business local and grow it you know, organically and, and not too fast. Okay. And how would you define specialty food? Well, I look at uh, specialty foods, you know, there's a lot of debates on, uh, on that, but we look at volume at some levels that creates, if you're too big in volume, you're not special anymore. And, mm-hmm. and you know, specialty foods is, is taking things and being unique um, at volumes that are, are not too big. And I look at the entrepreneurialism of, of chefs and, and food people and, and trying to do new things all the time. So to me, it looks, it's new, it's unique, um, it's challenging taste. And, and norms, and that's to me that that is special. Okay, a big thanks to Dom BG for joining us today. And you can find out more about this show at specialtyfood.com and heritageradionetwork.org. And remember to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Come back often to get to know the people who are shaping the future of food. Special thanks to Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. This is Spill and Dish, a Specialty Food Association podcast. Spill and Dish, a Specialty Food Association podcast, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.